Switching from something nice and cuddly, let me go to, to, to a story about uh, Holly um, Persek. Uh, Holly Persek was driving her car one day when she discovered that it was, well, the engine was burning and there was a smell. There's a smell coming from her engine that she knew that something was wrong, which was peculiar to her because she had just had it checked out two weeks before. And so for her engine to be burning, she thought that something was a problem. And she kept hearing this like clunking type of noise. And so she wanted to figure out what the issue was. And so like any of us would do with a burning engine and a clunking noise, she pulled her car over to the side of the road and she popped the hood. And and here's what she discovered in her car. Um, After she had got the car checked out two weeks previously, she had parked it outside And during that two-week period of time without her noticing it, squirrels had made a nest in her car preparing for winter. Those are walnuts that are there. When it was all said and done, the mechanics removed 200 walnuts from the engine of her car. Have any of you ever had that experience? Have any of you ever had something like that? I I hope not. Holly had a problem with her car. When she popped the hood, it was very identifiable what the problem was. That's not what an engine's supposed to look like, all right? So, like this car, you ready for this transition? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Like this car, humanity has a problem. We live in a world where not only do squirrels mess up car engines, Uh, We live in a world where there is brokenness, where there is pain, where there is suffering. We, though, as Christians who hold and believe to the word of, of God, we understand, though, this is not how the world is supposed to be. There is not supposed to be brokenness, pain, and suffering in our world. In fact, if you've been listening, over the last number of weeks, we've been studying the book of Genesis. And we've looked at the first two chapters in Genesis. And when you read the first two chapters in Genesis, you come away with an understanding of our world that it was made by God as good and perfect. In fact, Genesis chapter 2, where we finished off, ends with the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, in a perfect garden with everything that they need for their lives being provided for them by God. There is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no tears, there, are no, there is no sadness. There is not a problem with the world. And yet, that's not the world we live in today. So the question then comes, how did our world get to where it's at? Why is our world the way that it is? And then I would add to that, is there anything that can be done about this situation? Our world has a problem. There is pain, there is suffering in our world. And what I'd like to propose to you in just a moment is that just as it is obvious why there was a problem with Holly Persick's car, so too it should be obvious to us the reason why our world has the problems that it does. Because in Genesis chapter 3, the chapter that we're going to start looking at uh, this morning, this chapter begins to explore and answer the questions... Why are our lives in the world the way that they are? And what, if anything, can be done about it? Genesis chapter 3 is one of the most significant chapters in all of Scripture. In fact, pastor and, Arthur, pastor and author Arthur Pink said this. All right, I want you just to buckle up. Okay, 
listen, because I don't think he's underselling Genesis chapter 3, but here's what Arthur Pink said about this chapter that we're about to study over the next two weeks. The third chapter in Genesis is one of the most important in all the word of God. What has often been said of Genesis as a whole is particularly true of this chapter. It is the seed plot of the Bible. Here are the foundations upon which rest many of the cardinal doctrines of our faith. Here we find the divine explanation of the present fallen and ruined condition of our race. Here we learn of the subtle devices of our enemy, the devil. Here we behold the powerlessness of man to walk in the path of righteousness when divine grace is withheld from him. Here we discover the spiritual effects of sin, man seeking to flee from God. Here we discern the attitude of God toward the guilty sinner. Here we mark the universal tendency of human nature to cover its own moral shame by a device of man's own handiwork. Here we are taught of the gracious provision which God has made to meet our great need. Here begins that marvelous stream of prophecy which runs throughout all of the Holy Scripture. Here we learn that man cannot approach God except through a mediator. He's not underselling it. In this chapter, there is an abundance. There is an abundance, not just of of information, but but abundance of revelation to us about who we are, about, about how our lives got to be the way that they are, about how God then engages us. In the simplest terms, Genesis chapter 3 is about how our world went from good to bad and what God is going to do about it. So if you haven't done so thus far, I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to use the Bibles in the seats in front of you. They're underneath. If you don't have one or if you have an electronic device, you should get there pretty easily. Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Now, this chapter I have broken up into kind of four parts. Breaks up neatly into into four parts. What we're going to do this morning, as best I can, is we're going to cover the first two, touch on the last two, and then come back and, and touch on those next next week. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pull any punches in saying that there's gonna be a certain sense of potential hopelessness and maybe a, a lack of resolve to a degree this morning. Um, there's going to be more that you're going to want, but we're going to get to that next week. I'm going to try and do my best to get as far as we can. So enough with the setup. Are you ready to learn? Are you ready to grow? Okay, then let's, let's go. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Here we go. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit tree of the garden that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you, what? Die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I stop here at verse 5 because the first five verses, actually a little bit into verse 6, contain what I like to call the path to sin. The path to sin. 
The pain, suffering, and brokenness of our world and the lives that we live is a direct result of something that the Bible calls sin. But how is it that sin entered into our world? That is what these first five verses unfold for us. They reveal to us how we got into the problem that we now have. Now, before we can look at the path to sin, exactly how sin entered into the world, we have to deal with some questions because there is some stuff going on here, especially in verse 1. Like, let's take the big one first. Can I just, can I just call it on the carpet? We have in verse 1 a talking snake, okay? Can we just, can we just be honest with one another? Now, unless you're tripping out on drugs, all right, you probably never had an animal talk to you, okay? It just isn't something that happens. And yet the text portrays this as no big deal. In fact, we can tell by the woman's response, which is actually kind of shocking, that, that she doesn't seem to be surprised by the snake. And this tells us that this was a time in our world that was different. Because I don't know about you, every time that a snake pops up, like I go screaming, right? And if an animal talked to me, I would freak out. But we don't see Eve, Eve doing that. So let's, let's just deal with the snake for a few moments, okay? Let's, let's try and understand what's happening here. Um, first thing uh, you're going to find me doing throughout this entire message is the next two weeks is I'm going to be using the word snake and serpent interchangeably. Uh, and here's why I'm doing that. The, the Hebrew word here that is used to refer to this creature is a Hebrew word that is commonly used to refer to a a snake. So this probably isn't a a lizard or something like that. This creature appears just to be some form of of a common snake. Uh, It uses the word serpent, um, but those things can be used interchangeably, so I'm going to use them interchangeably. Um, And there's a couple things that we can say about this snake right off the bat. Sometimes we get it wrong. Notice there's a descriptor for this snake. Do you see it in verse 1? Now, the serpent was more what? Crafty. Now, we immediately think that um, that implies that this is a, an evil snake. Um, the word for crafty, again, in, in the Hebrew is a word that's also translated shrewd. It doesn't imply that this snake was evil. I don't believe that we have here, and I'm going to explain this. I, I'm not, I don't believe that we have here that uh, a, uh, a bad snake, okay? Um, nor do we have a good snake gone bad. We have a regular average Joe serpent snake who is defined within the animal kingdom as, as one who is, who is wary or, or, or tentative, who is, who is perceptive of what is, is going on. Now, you're still waiting me for me to get to the point that I know that you're wondering about, why is a snake talking, okay? If we just have an average snake, what is, is going on? Um, some of you might be wondering, could animals talk before the fall, before sin entered the world? Some people thought maybe animals were able to talk. Maybe we had like a Narnia situation. You guys familiar with the line, the witch and wardrobe, right? Chronicles of Narnia, the animals get to talk. Here's my answer to that. And, and this is just my answer. I say no, animals couldn't talk before, before the fall. Um, the reason why I say that is because nowhere else in the Bible does it allude to a time when animals could speak. We do have the... Balaam's donkey who speaks later on, but that's a whole different thing going on there. I don't think animals could talk. I think there's a very specific reason why this snake could talk, and I think there's a very specific reason why Eve wasn't surprised that this snake was, was talking. Let me deal with that one first. The reason I don't think Eve was surprised by this snake talking was because Eve was not an omniscient being. Do you know what I mean when I say omniscient? 
She didn't know everything. And the world is a big, wide place. She knew that Adam could speak. And so who was she to say that maybe somewhere else in God's creation there weren't other animals that could speak? Uh, that's part of the reason I don't think that she, is, she was ultimately surprised. But why could this animal speak? Well, here's where I'm going to say that I do believe that this was a snake, this was a serpent, that was under the control of Satan. Under the control of, of Satan. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, because of the dialogue. Because of what the serpent attempts to get Eve to do. This serpent isn't innocent in its speech. The serpent is trying to direct Eve ultimately from the worship of God to, to other things. And that is Satan's primary goal throughout the entirety of Scripture. But then also because in the book of Revelation, the very last chapters of the entire Bible, it refers back to this event. Look at this. This is in Revelation 12, 9. It says this. And I put the Scriptures up there so you don't have to jump there. And the great dragon was thrown, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and what? Satan. We continue on. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelation is looking back and it's talking about what happened to Satan and it's referring to him as the serpent. And then it says it again in Revelation 22. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is who? the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. So what do we have here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1? We have Satan speaking through a creature to Eve. Satan is coming and he is speaking to God's creation, to his image bearers, and what does he say to them? He says to them, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Remember, we're talking about the path to sin. And here's where I want to tell you this. The path to sin, it started with a question. The path to sin, it started with a question. Now, I'm not saying that it's not wrong to ask God questions. It's not wrong to have questions about his, his word. But Satan here was not being innocent in the question that he was asking. This question was specifically designed to undercut God and his relationship with his creation. In, in one sense, the question from the serpent to Eve could seem rather innocent. D did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It could be like Satan coming and saying, now did God, did he tell you to turn left or did he tell you to turn right? I, I can't remember. That's, that's not what's behind this question. It's not that innocent. And we know this because of what comes later on. Instead, this question is more like this. Are you ready? In the full context of what has happened, this is really why the question is so devious and so, so sinister. It's, it's the serpent coming and saying, so God, he put you here in the garden, but then I heard he told you that you could not eat from the trees that he planted in it. Is that right? Did God actually say to you after he, he puts you here that you couldn't eat of the trees of the garden? Satan knows exactly what God had commanded. But what's he doing here? Satan's question is fully intended to put God in a negative light. It is a question designed to draw attention to God's prohibition, to draw attention to what God is keeping them from, 
Satan is calling God's provision and God's goodness into question. Because what had God said to Adam and Eve? He had said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but here's the exception. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely, what? Die. What Satan is doing by saying, did God actually say that you couldn't eat of the trees of the garden? Satan changed God's positive invitation to eat of every tree, with only one exception, into a negative prohibition designed to cast doubt on God's provision in general. He's coming to Eve, and he's creating for the first time a question about God. He wants to see, Eve, where are you at in your thinking about God? Where are you at, Eve, in your thinking about the fact that God gave you everything but, 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 but one thing? And sadly, what we discover is that Eve does not come and fully defend God's provision. Look at how she responds in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit trees. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Now, at first glance, it appears that Eve defends God and corrects the serpent's faulty accusation. But look more closely. In saying that we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, she does something. Do you know what she does? She minimizes the provision of the Lord. The Lord had said that all the trees but one were there for, for them. The truth is that God said that all the trees in the garden were there for them to eat from. Not just from the fruit of the trees. And in the Hebrew, it literally refers to the, the, the fruit trees. And so what Eve is saying in here in her response to the serpent is, oh, you know what, well, the trees, the only ones that we can really eat from are, are these types of trees versus God saying it was all given to you for your sustenance. And so she comes, and what does she do? She minimizes what God had actually provided. She, she limits God's provision. Now tell me, have you ever had a child come up to you and say they were hungry and that there was nothing to eat in the entire house? And yet you, being the wise and, and intelligent and providing parent, knows exactly that there is food for them to eat. But what is the child doing? The, the child is only focusing on what, what they want. Because then you go through your list. You could eat this. You could eat this. And then they, then they say it. Then they say it. They, they change their tune from there's nothing to eat in the house to what? I don't want that. Friends, this is what is happening in our story. There's this narrowing of focus. Eve's response here is a big deal because it shows us that something is happening in her heart. She's failing to embrace the fullness of God's provision. Some people have said, well, maybe she just didn't know fully the command of God. Maybe, maybe she was mistaken. I, I don't think that that is the case at all especially because of what comes next. I want to just pause here and just ask the question, have you ever diminished God's provision? Have you ever narrowed your focus on what you don't have versus what you do, do have? That's what Eve is doing. You want to know what the path to sin looks like? It started with a question, but, but 
but it also included this diminishing of God's provision. It started with a question. It continued with a diminishing of God's provision, but then there's this. Look at verse 3. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She's already, she's already diminishing God's provision. But now here with this, with this statement that, that God's command to them was not only to not eat of the fruit tree in the middle of the garden, to not eat of the fruit tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, now she comes and she says that God had said that we should not touch it. Do you know what's wrong with that? He didn't say that they couldn't touch it. I'm going to say this right now. Not only was, was she diminishing God's provision, not only was that part of what led to sin, but she's messing with God's word. She's messing with God's word. Whether it's a misinterpretation, whether it's adding or subtracting to it, she's messing here with the word of God because God didn't say that they couldn't touch it. He said that they couldn't eat it. And what's wrong with this statement? What is, else does this reveal of what's in her heart? By saying that God said they couldn't touch it, Do you see what she's done with God? She's made him far stricter and far harsher than he actually is. She she has created an image of God. God's word is perfect. His commands are pure and right and good. You don't need to add to them. The moment you start messing with God's word, the, the moment that you're not clear on it, it paints a picture in your mind of God that isn't true. Because God didn't say, listen, you know what? If you're walking along and the fruit's on the ground and it touches your foot, you're going to die. That's not what he said. He said, when you intentionally go after it, when you eat of the fruit, then you will surely die. She's making him more harsh than he actually was. By adding to God's word, she's additionally adding a burden to her life and to Adam's life, a burden that God didn't call for them to bear. He just said, don't eat it. But then if you notice at the end of verse 3, she says something else. She says, you shall not eat of the fruit tree of, that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. And then her words, not God's, are, lest you die. See, what's wrong with this? In Genesis 2.17, God had said, the day that you eat of it, you will what? Surely die. See how she's messing with the word of God? There's this lack of clarity with it. She's not taking God's word for what it says. And, and by not taking God at his word, she's, she's twisting it and, and, and she's adding and she's subtracting. There's a big difference between surely dying and lest you die. You know what the big difference is? Maybe you're going to die, maybe you're not. We're going to see, lest you die. God said, no, 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 listen, my word is firm and secure. When I say something's going to happen, it's going to happen. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's this, this, you can see here, Satan starts with a question, a question about God's provision. It, Satan is, is just putting out there to Eve, maybe, maybe, maybe God isn't who you think he is. And then Eve, in each one of her answers, begins to reveal that, that she has begun to this really distort who her God actually is. Ultimately, it leads to one final 
thing. Look at what the serpent does. Look at what Satan says, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not, what, surely die? He actually adds it back in. She had subtracted the surely. He puts it back in. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see what Satan does here? Satan knows that what is really crucial to destroy, he, he knows what's really crucial to destroy. He doesn't, he doesn't try and get Eve to deny the existence of God. He doesn't say, the only way I'm going to get to the human race is to get them to deny that God actually exists. You know what the crazy thing is? The world today, the majority of the world believes that there is a God and that he does exist. And yet things are still a mess. So, so he doesn't go after that. He doesn't actually go after the law of God or the holiness of God. He doesn't say, oh, God doesn't care what you're going to do. He doesn't say, you can't eat of that tree. He doesn't deny God's existence. He knows that all of these things are self-evident to Adam and Eve. So instead, what does he do? By saying you will not surely die, he calls into question God's truthfulness. And then he calls into question God's that's, that's the hook that he's trying to set. If I can get humanity to question the trustworthiness and the truthfulness of God, I've got him. I've got him. And so he says to the woman, he says, you come now, stand and judge. You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of these things, your eyes will be open. You'll be just like him. You'll know good and evil. Now, you and I can, might look at this and say, oh, man, it should have been self-evident to you. Eve, he's calling God a liar. Why would you believe, Eve, that God would possibly be lying to you? I look at them sometimes, I'm just like, you guys really screwed up. I don't know that I would ever do something like that. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because, tell me something, folks. Um, one of the big claims that God had said was that the day that they eat of the fruit tree, they will surely die. Had they ever seen death before? Death hadn't existed up to this point. Yet he said there was this thing called death, the opposite of life, this thing, thing called death. Satan comes and says, you're not going to surely die. Death? What is that? Really? See, we think the lie is so obvious, but they've never seen it. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe there isn't a thing called death. And maybe if there's not a thing called death, maybe. Remember, again, if, if God... If God really isn't prov fully providing, maybe, if, if, I, if I'm questioning his provision, if, I, if I've messed up his word in my mind, then, then maybe, maybe he's not just simply not trustworthy, but maybe when Satan says that he's holding back from us some kind of good, maybe is he not only not trustworthy, maybe he's not good. Maybe that's true. Maybe if there's not this thing called death, maybe then... Maybe there's a goodness that we haven't yet experienced because God doesn't want us to. Maybe he's holding something back from us. See, what Satan's trying to get them to believe ultimately is this. If, if you worship God, you're going to miss out. If you obey God, you won't be happy. If you obey the will of God, it will cut you off from other options, better options. It'll keep you from being all that you want to be. And so what Satan is doing here is he's ultimately saying, you can't trust him, Eve. You have to take your life into your own hands. Eve, you're the best judge of what you need. You want to know what the path to sin looks like? 
The path to sin looks like diminishing God's provision. It looks like messing with God's word. And then it looks like standing as the only judge. If you find yourself in the place where, where only your feelings, where only your thoughts are the final arbitrator of, of all things, if you really believe that you know what's best for yourself, you stand in the place where Eve stood. And then Eve acted out of her judgment. Look at verse 6. It shows us that she saw herself as that judge. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, stop there. Did you see what each one of those statements betrays? Eve now is standing in judgment of the fruit. She's standing in judgment of what Satan has said. Satan has created a, a false narrative. He had said, he said, listen, rather than God being the good God, the perfect God who's provided for you completely, maybe, maybe he's not that. Maybe you can't trust him. Maybe he's not good. And sure enough, when she looks at the food, she notices that this fruit, that it is good for food, she believes now it's physically satisfying. It's a delight to the eyes. It's emotionally satisfying. It's desire to make one wise. It's spiritually satisfying. Her eyes are no longer on her God. Her heart was no longer enthralled with him. She saw the fruit and saw it doing for her what God had said he would always do. And she thought that it would do more. Eve was deceived into thinking that the fruit of the tree could do for her what only God could do. You see, in your notes there, I made this statement, ultimately the garden temptation was an attack on God's truthfulness and goodness. Eve, do you believe God to be true and do you believe him to be good? And so as she looked at that fruit and as she heard the words of Satan, as those things rang in her ear, she made a judgment. She took her eyes off of a God who had never failed to not be truthful with her, who had never failed to not provide for her, and she looked at this other thing and she said, he's holding back. I believe, I believe that I do need that fruit to be physically, emotionally, and spiritually satisfied. That I can't be those things apart from having that fruit. She in this moment, you want to know what the path to sin, what it looks like. It's, it's ultimately this denial of the goodness and the truthfulness of, of God. And so what does verse 6 tell us? It says, she, she took of the fruit and she what? She ate. She ate it. It's so crazy that the thing that ultimately brought death, disease, destruction, and brokenness into our world is recorded in Genesis chapter 6 as such a simple act. She took of the fruit and ate. But in eating of that fruit, what was she doing? She was substituting the creation for the creator. And that's monumental. That is world-changing, earth-shattering, life-altering. And yet it's simply recorded as she took of the fruit and she ate. See, now we've moved into what the act of sin is. What is the act of, of sin? It's rejecting God and his word. That's what Eve did. When she took of the fruit and ate, she wasn't just eating a piece of fruit. And by the way, we don't know what it was. 
It most likely probably wasn't an app. We don't know. I'm glad that we don't know what kind of fruit it was. It was just something that was appealing to her. And she took of the fruit and she ate it. But that act was a rejection of God and it was a rejection of his word. But if you notice, the text says that she didn't eat it alone, did she? She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In a, in a moment, in a moment, everything changes. Adam and Eve, who had lived in perfect harmony with God in relationship to him because they had accepted him as their God, because they had accepted his, his word, in that moment of rejection, everything changed. And, and here's, here's just a truly devastating thing. The, the New Testament says that Eve was deceived. Okay? The, the, the New Testament tells us that Eve, listening to that serpent, was ultimately deceived by him. She was led astray. But you know what? It doesn't say that about Adam. The crazy thing about Adam was that he willfully took of the fruit and he ate it. He saw that it didn't have consequence for his wife, and so he just took of it. He didn't even have to be deceived. He just took and he ate. And because of that, sin entered the world. Do you want to know why we have the problems in the world that we have? Humanity's sin is the cause of all that is wrong with ourselves and the world. In fact, we find that right there in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open. Pause there. Now, if it just stops there, you would think that Satan had fulfilled his promise, right? Satan says, you're going to know things that you didn't know before once you eat of the fruit. You'll be like God. See, because up to that point in creation, they didn't know death. They didn't know sin. They didn't know that there was another way. And, and so it starts with, and then their eyes were opened. And, it, you know, we talk about that today. He says, oh, finally, my eyes were opened. I saw the light, right? And we refer to that as a good thing. It's not a good thing here. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were, what? Naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Instead of the opening of their eyes, opening them up to something far more grand and beautiful and wonderful, it opened them up to their depravity. We're going to look at this in detail next week, the result of sin. Rather than this being a life-giving act, what we learn from Genesis chapter 3 is when you reject God and his word, you reject life itself. Now, they did not physically die on that day. But make no doubt, they died. Because the life that they were now living was no life to be lived at all. I don't think that, and I can just speak to us as a church family, we have no true concept, church, of, of the life that is in store for us through a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. We think that we're alive. In fact, people who are apart from God, they think that they're alive, but the New Testament continually refers to people as being dead in their trespasses and sins. Whatever what we're doing right now, whatever kind of life we're living, it, it's no life at all in comparison to what Adam and Eve had. Sure, they did not die physically, but they died spiritually on that day, and they died emotionally on that day. Because they were now naked, they knew shame, they knew guilt. Can you imagine living, a, I can't even imagine a life never having experienced guilt. 
shame, embarrassment, sadness. We can't even wrap our minds around the glory of what that would be like, yet they knew that. And you know what the devastating thing is? For 920 years, Adam had to live with the memory of the life he previously had. You want to know what the graces of God to us is, I think, in one sense? Is we don't know the fullness of what we're missing out on. Until we come to Christ, we get a taste of what that is. They lost it on that day. And so when you stop at, at Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, we find not just the path to sin, we see the act of sin, we see what sin brought into our world, and things appear hopeless. Everything is stained by this action. But I gotta, I gotta leave us this morning, though, with some hope. Because what the rest of Genesis chapter 3 and the rest of the Bible tells us is that while there was a path to sin and there was the act of sin, we also have the act of God. And this is our hope. We also have the act of God. This is our hope. There is a promise laid forth in Genesis chapter 3, and it's found for us in verse 15, that although man by his sin brought the devastation into the world that we now experience, God would one day send forth one. He would act on humanity's behalf. Although it was your actions and my actions that invited the death, decay, sadness, and suffering in our world, he would act to make things right. And in just a moment, what's going to happen for us as a church is we're going to remind ourselves of the act of God. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, which represents the act of God, Jesus Christ being sent from the Father to earth to redeem, to reconcile, to bring to life those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And so we read Genesis 3 realizing how we got here, but we read the rest of the Bible recognizing what God has done to remedy our situation. And, and so, so instead of, see, see, here's the temptation that remains for all of us even today. The temptation for all of us, the thing that leads us into sin is when we find ourselves denying the trustworthiness and the goodness of our God. When we go after other things, when we take and when we eat, we, we write about the commandments that we should not break. When we sin against other, other people, what we're ultimately saying is, God, I don't trust you and I don't believe enough in your goodness to sustain me and to be sufficient enough for me. But what combats that in our heart is when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ. God promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would one day send somebody who would deal with the penalty of our sin. And he kept his word. He promised us that he would demonstrate his love for us by redeeming and reconciling us. He would show us a goodness that we do not deserve. And we see that at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so for us, as his sons and as his daughters, every single day when we are, are prone to wander, prone to question, God, are you good? Can I trust you? He calls us back. Not to this garden, but to the cross where we see his goodness and his trustworthiness on full display. Do you know him in that way? Do you believe that you can trust him? Do you believe that he is good? If you do, then in a moment I'm going to invite the elders and others to come forward. We're going to take of the bread and the cup proclaiming to our hearts. You are good can trust you, and therefore we can walk now as your people. Let's pray together.
Lord, we bow before you, knowing that we do not always set you in our hearts as King and as Lord. And so as we did earlier in the service, so once again, we confess. We confess, Lord, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We are part of the problem. We have walked the path to sin, and we have acted in sin. And yet, Lord, we come to you today believing you to have acted on our behalf, and so we have a hope that our sins can be forgiven, that we can actually begin to experience the life that you created us to have in and through your son, Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name that we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen.